Londoners are rightly proud of the gaslighting that has made the streets so much safer at night than in their grandfather's day. Respectable Londoners, that is to say. There are plenty of residents who do not want any kind of light shining on their activities. They are the folk who interest me and any other police officer. Unfortunately, there is one thing that renders the gas lamps almost useless and provides plenty of cover for wrongdoing. It is the London fog. It is as though evil had found its natural milieu, creeping its way unseen into every nook and cranny. Fog is the villain's willing accomplice, and the murderer's quick-to-learn apprentice. The early months of 1870 had tested our hardiness to breaking point. We were now in March, yet still the snow lay banked up and soot-coated in sheltered corners. The bitter wind nipped at noses and ears, and even the best of gloves couldn't protect chilled fingers. People had begun to murmur wistfully about spring, many as if remembering an old departed friend. More optimistic hearts spoke of it as not being many weeks away, at least according to the calendar. Well, you would never have guessed it. London, in addition to the cold, had been assailed for the past week by a foul-smelling, suffocating pea-souper. Sea mists rolled up river and encountered the pall of coal smoke belching from every chimney, whether domestic or industrial. Also contributing were the engines puffing in and out of our great railway termini, odours from the giant gasometers, the noxious vapours from the Thames mud at low tide, the rotting heaps of rubbish in the slum courtyards and nameless refuse running in the gutters. And there you have it, a London particular, as it's known. It wraps itself around everything like a dirty yellow blanket, slips into a house the moment a door is opened, and finds any chink in a window frame. Londoners are perversely proud of that, too. Fog is something they do better than anyone else. Beggars and vagrants froze in the streets overnight. Drunken revellers stumbled from the alehouses and sprawled on the cobbles. Unable to aid themselves and unseen in the murk by passers-by, their stiffened corpses were often discovered when some other person tripped over them. Where it had melted, snow had now turned to icy slush. The horses had pieces of sacking tied over their hooves to prevent them slipping, and would have looked comical in these winter boots if they could have been seen in the gloom. As it was, the familiar clip-clop of their approach was muffled, and you couldn't always hear them coming. There would be a sudden rattle of wheels out there in the greyish-yellow curtain, and a dull thud, perhaps a sudden nervous whinny, followed by a shout from the cabby or other driver. The pedestrian had to leap aside, hoping as he did so that he leapt in the right direction. Understandably, accidents had become commonplace. The swirling monster breathed sickness and death on its clammy, intrusive breath. The very young and the very old were its first victims, but no one was safe. On all sides, the coughs and wheezes of the stricken could be heard in the murk, and served better than any lantern in locating pedestrians. It sometimes seemed as if most of London was ailing. The casual wards of the workhouses were full. Hopeful queues formed every evening— but most were turned away. The children of the poor were sewn into bodices of wadded cotton to be cut free and emerge like moths from a chrysalis in spring, if they survived until then. At Scotland Yard, that Monday morning, the week had not started well. We had our fair share of casualties, brought about by the cold and damp. Even a seemingly immovable fixture like Superintendent Dunn had succumbed. He was at home in bed with a mustard poultice on his chest and his feet on a stone-hot water bottle, under the watchful eye of Mrs. Dunn. His absence freed us from his demands to know what we were all doing, 
and why this or that criminal had not yet been brought to book. But it also slowed the making of decisions. This meant much day-to-day business fell to me. I did not mind, but I did wonder what would happen when Dunn returned, restored to vigour, and turned his eagle eye on everything I'd instigated in his absence.' 